I agree. That was beautiful. Well, this morning, I, there's a treat here for me, actually. Because I told you that everybody always tells me that I'm just like my dad. And the reason why I love the Bible is because of his example. Well, my dad is here today. He's here for, and for the annual council meetings, and he's standing right here. <clears throat> when we were kids, everywhere we went, people would always say, okay, and here's the pastor's family, and we all had to stand up and wave. So it's nice to have my dad. I can actually do that to my dad now. <laughs> um, yes, I am. There were so many people who came up to me afterwards and said, who know my dad, and they said, oh, you're, you really are just like your dad whenever you speak. And I said, if you only knew. Uh, my husband is the one who knows how much like my dad I am. And uh, I'm sure there are many days when he wishes that I wasn't as much like my dad. Let me give you one example. When we were growing up, um, whenever my mom was gone, which is not very often, the only thing my dad knew how to cook was scrambled eggs. So we had a lot of scrambled eggs every time. Well, what do you think is a stap staple in my house now? Scrambled eggs, yes. Because it is the easiest thing to make. And because I'm just like my dad, I'm so busy all the time, that is what I go to. So yes, um, the genes that my mom has of being a great cook didn't really stick with me, unfortunately. <laughs> it's the scrambled eggs we have. <laughs> well, this morning, let's pray together, and then we will open up the word. Lord, thank you for being here. I pray for your Holy Spirit to take over for you to be the one who speaks to us. Amen. So once again, because this is a series on Ezra, I'm going to ask you a question. And the question I have for you is just for you to ponder, to think about. The question is this. When was the last time that you can think of that you fasted and prayed for someone or something in your life? And I'm not talking about when everybody said, okay, it is time for the 30-hour famine, so let's all do it. Or, I don't know if you do it here, but in the Czech Republic, we do a Pathfinder badge, where if you fast for a day, you get a Pathfinder badge. Um, that was the first time I ever fasted, even though most of us kids cheated. Um, I don't know if you do that here. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you seriously praying and fasting over something. And if you said, well, I can't really think of one, then you're not alone because the majority of the Adventist church nowadays does not fast and pray. My mom last year went to the Czech Republic for a visit and she had heard right before she was on this trip that her sister was vaccinated for encephalitis. And she didn't realize that she, her sister would get super, super sick. And by the time my mom got there, my, her sister was was throwing up all the time, horrible headaches, just felt awful because instead of it actually working the way it was supposed to, it made her sick. And no one knew what to do. Suddenly, like over, over a, a short period of time, everybody was just scrambling. They didn't know how to help her. And when my mom got there, she's, as she always does, as my parents always do, they fast and pray over everything, over so many things in our lives, and that's why we do it now. 
she just started fasting and praying for that day. She fasted that whole day, and during the night, she prayed through the night. In the morning, she got a call from her sister, and her sister said, you will not believe this. I feel so good. I was actually able to sleep through the night. And my mom said, oh, I do believe it. I know why. Because I fasted and prayed for you, and God answered my prayer. And another sister was standing right next to her. My mom is out of 10 kids. And she turned towards her, and she said, you did what? You fasted and prayed? We don't do that anymore over here. That's something that people used to do. I wonder when it happened that our society, that our Adventist church stopped fasting and praying. That is only those few who do it now. And now when people say, let's fast, it's almost like they're, they're crazy. Oh, no, don't say that out loud. Well, we're going to talk about Ezra. And Ezra was not only a man of God, but he also was a man who fasted and prayed. And in chapter 8, which is what we will be today, he explains through this one story that happens and the, the verses that we'll see, why it is that fasting is important, and it is important even for us today. So let's look at it together. We are in Ezra chapter 8. And it starts out with a genealogy. It says, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, if you are like most people, you say, okay, here we go. The names are starting right here. Um, let me see, what is the last verse of where the, ver where the names are? Okay, let's skip that. Next. Right? And I completely understand. I do that with many, many books. Whenever I see where there is just a long explanation of something, oh, I'm not reading that. I'm throwing that out. That is not something that's, uh, that I want to do. I don't really want to know that there is a tree here, another tree here, and then the path here, and an explanation of how all that happens. No, just give me the juice. Give me the story, right? I want the action. So we skip the genealogies in the Bible as well. Well, let me tell you that the genealogies, each one of them is unique. And there is something about this one that is unique as well. For number one, in the Hebrew mind, whenever they wrote things, many times they wrote them in a structure that kind of went towards a, towards a point. And that point was the center point that was the most important point of that passage. Now, what do you think is the most important point of chapters 7 and 8? What is the center point of chapter 7 and 8? The genealogy. We never would have guessed, right? That it is a genealogy, and we just completely skip over it. Why? Why is that the center point that the Hebrews highlighted? Well, if you read it, it actually has names and a number, and then names and a number, and names and a number. And if you count them, it is exactly 12 numbers. Now, if you think of the number 12, what does that refer to? The 12 tribes of Israel, right? And you think, well, okay, no big deal because they were 12, 12 tribes of Israel. But they weren't, not by this time. There were only two surviving tribes, only Judah and Benjamin. 
The rest of the ten had already been assimilated into the cultures when the Assyrian king came and took over. There are only two tribes left now, and even today, any Jews will trace themselves to either Judah or Benjamin. Why? Why 12 then? Because God wants us as readers to notice that he still sees them as a whole people. He still sees them as his Israel. And this journey that they're taking is part of his plan to recreate them again into his people, into who they are supposed to be. And so now, I want you to keep that in mind as we keep going through the story. And let's go to chapter 15, to the Jews. Or verse 15. And it says, Now I, Ezra, gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. The king had just given him a letter, and he said, you can go to Judah, take whoever you want with you, and I'm giving you a ton of stuff to take with you to the temple. And so Ezra goes and sends out notices. He sends out all over Persia. People are told, the Jews are told, it is time to go home. He says, God has promised to bring us back to the promised land, so now is our time to go home. Meet me at the river Ahava, which by the way means the river of love. Meet me by the river of Ahava, I will be waiting there for three days for you, and then we'll go. When the first group went with Zerubbabel, 50,000 people went back. And we're told by the experts of, uh, on Persia that there were at least a double of that still left in Persia, maybe more. So Ezra could have been expecting, okay, well, we could have another 50,000. Why not? We could have a large group of people coming back to Judah. And so he's waiting at this river, and he waits the first day. And at the end of the first day, he kind of surveys of who's all there, and he realizes, well, hmm, about two or 3,000. Okay, well, we still have two more days. And he's waiting and waiting, and at the end of the third day, he counts only about five. What happened to all the people? Where are they? And then he looks, and on top of it all, there are no Levites there. The people who should have been studying the scripture, who should have known that God is sending them back to Judah, and prophets were telling them life in, in Babylon is going to get really hard. If you're going to be a true follower of God, it's going to be really hard. You need to go home. But where are those people? They didn't show. And so then he calls together 11 leaders, 12 with him. Once again, the number 12. The number 12 repeats throughout the chapter. You can notice that when you read it. And they deliberate, and he sends them to Kasiphia. It says, I gave them a command for Ido. I'm in verse 17. The chief man at the place Kasiphia, and I told them that they should say to Ido, to send us servants for the temple. So they go to Kasiphia, and Ido must have been an influential leader because he sends them back with 38 Levites and 220 temple servants. 
what I find really interesting about this part of the story. Have any of you heard of Cassiphia? Yes? No? No. In fact, if you look up into all the commentaries, you'll find that nobody really knows what it was or where it was. The only thing that we know is that there was an assembly of, of Levites there and they must have worshipped together. But it has not been preserved. And it makes me wonder, these Levites are holding on to a place that is unimportant and insignificant instead of going to where God actually wants them to go. And it makes me think, what am I going to be known for? Am I going to be known for holding on to things that are insignificant and unimportant? Or for holding on to the things that make a difference, that truly are important? And I have to say that I was almost like these Levites when Pastor Chad called me about this position to talk to me. I really just agreed to speak with him to not be rude. I said, okay, well, you can talk about this position because I had a plan. I had a plan in my mind. I was going to finish teaching in just one more year, and then I was going to work on my PhD. And so when he called, I said, well, that's not for me. And I was counting on my husband to also say that's not for me because every time I would suggest that we should go here or there, he would say, oh, no, no, we need to stay in Berrien. So I had a conversation with him. I came home that night, and I told my husband this is what happened during the conversation, and he was just thinking for a little bit, and he said, okay, we could go to Maryland. And I just, I actually remember like laughing out loud saying, what do you mean we could go to Maryland? We cannot go to Maryland. And then I had a conversation on the phone with a friend of mine who's a really godly lady who prays and fasts about everything. And she said, well, I think you already know what it is that you're going to end up doing. And I said, and I just kind of hung up and I was angry. I said, what do you mean you already, you, you already know? How can you already know? It's only been two days, right, that I just heard about this. Well, God had to work with me. And I prayed and fasted. And it took a while for me to realize that God's plan was very different from what I had wanted. And that it wasn't about what I want, that it is about what he wants for me. And that when I do what he wants for me, it ends up being so much better than what I imagine that I want. So they are gathered here at this river. But before they go, they're ready to, to leave, right, at the end of three days. Before they go, Ezra says, oh, no, no, hold up. We cannot go yet. There's something we have to do first. It says in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. And then as Renan has read the rest, he explains why. He says, because I told the king that God watches over those who seek him and not over those who do not. So the king did not give us an escort of soldiers. And the trip from Babylon to Judah, which is going to take over four months. And there is no way that anyone during that time traveled without soldiers surrounding their group. That was suicide. 
There was constant looting, and people were killed in caravans all the time, even when they had soldiers with them. And so he said, no, we cannot go anywhere because we have to fast and pray. And he could have just done it himself. He could have just said, okay, well, I'm going to fast, and you guys just go. No, he said, no, we are all going to fast and pray because it is important that we all do it. And then it says, so we fasted and, in, and sought our God for this, in verse 23, and God did what? He answered our prayer. Verse 31 says, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So because they fasted and prayed, God's hand is going with them, protecting them, and nothing happened, which was unheard of during this time. But there's something that I think a lot of times we miss when we read verse 21. And that is that, yes, they were praying and fasting for a safe, for a safe journey for God to protect them. But there is one other reason for why Ezra said we need to fast. He says, so that we might humble ourselves before our God. And the word for humble is ana. And it's a word that's translated all over the Bible as someone who is afflicting themselves, someone who is denying themselves something, someone who is saying, God, I need you. And I am willing to give up things. I believe that fasting became a bad word in our society when our society threw out words like self-discipline, and self-denial. I mean, just think about it. What is our world like? Whatever is fast, that's what we want. If it takes longer than to just drive around a building to pick up the fast food, we're not doing it. We want to be happy, and we want to be happy now, and you better not make me wait. I was just listening to a podcast on... Um, on from a Christian counselor who was saying that whenever they used to do gatherings of, for premarital counseling, they would just have a bunch of Christian couples come together. 20 years ago, they knew that about 40% of them would have been sexually active. That was something that they would count on. Fast forward 20 years later, they said now when they do that, there's only 5% that didn't. They did not have premarital sex. And they were saying it is a completely different world within those 15 years because everything is about, I want it now, I need to be happy and satisfied right now. Not really realizing it is not really doing that. Fasting became something that we don't do because it goes against what our society says we should be doing. Wanting everything now. And we don't want to deny ourselves anything anymore. But I want you to notice what the fasting actually does for the people. When they get back to Jerusalem, and God has just protected them and done this great thing in their lives, do you think they were excited? 
Yes, they're excited. In verse 35, this says what they did. It says, the children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Okay, so they are giving a thank offering to God. But it is not just, okay, let's do, uh, you know, two lambs here and three rams here. No, notice how much they're actually giving. Twelve bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. And then it says, all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They were so excited that they were giving God everything they had because they experienced what it was like for God to work in their lives. The first time I fasted, I seriously fasted, was when I was struggling with whether to go into the ministry. I got to the point where I felt like I had this pressure on my shoulders constantly, like I had to make a decision. What was I going to do? And so I called together my family and friends, and I told them, can you please pray for me? Can you pray with me? We will pray from 6 a.m. until about um, 1 p.m., and those who wanted to could fast with me, and I fasted. And at the end of that day, after fasting and praying and just spending time in Scripture, just reading and reading and reading, I knew I knew that I had been resisting God and that I need to just let go. And so then I finally said, okay, God, this is what you have for me. I promise you that I will give everything to you, and I just want you to lead me. I will go wherever you want me to go. The next day, I applied to go into the seminary. But that afternoon, I just started calling around the people that were praying for me and sharing with them that I knew after this day. And when I called my sister who lived in California at this time, I uh, picked up the, just called her and she picked up the phone and I said, okay, so God told me that yes, this is what I should be doing. She said, oh, Andrea, I already know. And I said, what do you mean you already know? And she said, well, because I prayed the night before that if this is what God had for you, that he would make it completely clear to you. And so I asked him that he would do something for me. And I asked him, that he would wake me up every hour on the hour at 3 a.m., at 4 a.m., at 5 a.m., at 6 a.m., at 7 a.m., exactly on the dot, she said, without an alarm clock. And she said, and that is exactly what God did. That is exactly what God did. He woke me up at 3.00, at 4.00, at 5.00. Each time, she said, and I prayed, and I would go back to bed. Do you think I was excited? I was beyond excited. I just couldn't believe that God answered in such a way through my sister to show me clearly that this was his plan for my life. And it was because we were willing to say, I will fast and pray for this. It never would have happened otherwise. There is power in prayer because of who is behind that prayer and that power. Because of a God who has incredible power. And God 
the way he's structured even these chapters shows us that Ezra, who is this man of God, and then it shows in the middle the people of God that he's wanting to restore, and then once again, a man of God who's teaching people how to fast and pray. It all works together for God to make us who we should be. The people of God we truly should be. We need men and women who are willing to make it their habit to spend time in the Word of God every single day. And we also need youth, young adults, collegiates, adults, seniors, everyone to be willing to fast and pray. To not just do what everyone else is doing in the Christian world, but to be different. And that is okay to be different. I know that there are some who cannot fast because of medical reasons, but why would that be an excuse for all the rest of us? We can fast and pray. And God can do mighty things when we fast and pray. So my question to you once again is, will you be one of them?